If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 26. And the text is printed in the bulletin for you also. Let's pray and then we'll read the passage. Lord Jesus, you are the Word of God. You are the perfect communication and revelation of God to us. And yet, uh, now you are away from us in heaven. You're away from us in, uh, in a sense of your physical presence is not with us, and yet your spirit dwells with us, and your spirit spoke through the prophets and the apostles. And so, we have your word, um, you, the word about you, the word about your work, the word about your church. And so we pray that as we come to it this morning, that you would be the one at work in our lives by your spirit to lift up our hearts and to renew our minds, to create faith if faith is absent, and to strengthen our faith if our faith is weak. We pray that you would be exalted as we come to your word and uh, humbly submit ourselves to it. We pray in your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. Acts 1. Verses 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, And he was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And... Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So, um, it's kind of a long passage. Does this passage... Uh, instinctively, you know, as we read it, just connect with you on a deep existential level. 
Do you really just resonate with everything that's going on in this, in this scene? On the face of it, does it address a felt need of yours? Um, I would guess that your answer is no. Are you crazy? <laughs> uh, it's a list of names. It's an account of a rather gruesome death, the death of a traitor, and it's some weird method of replacing the dead guy to fill up the roster. It's not immediately apparent to us how to apply this text to our lives, I would guess. So we need to consider the larger context of the passage. And we even need to explore the larger context of the whole Bible to make ourselves actually feel the, the felt need <laughs> that is being addressed by this. And then we'll may, maybe be able to see how it connects with our lives. Um, I, I told my sons I was going to quote from the movie Cars <laughs> <laughs> this morning. Lightning McQueen, uh, when he's uh, uh, maybe a bit taken with his own ability to infatuate his, uh, his friend Sally, <laughs> says, I create feelings in others that they themselves don't understand. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure we don't quite understand the feelings that are being felt by the apostles and the need, what's, what's being addressed in this passage. And so um, I'm here to create those feelings for you, even if you don't understand them. <laughs> <laughs> That's my goal, right? Okay, so, uh, so let's, let's back up just a tiny bit to the passage that we discussed last week. Luke is the author of uh, both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And he had recounted for us the fact that Jesus, who had uh, died and been raised from the dead, appeared to his disciples and taught them about the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples how the Old, uh, Old Testament scriptures spoke of him how they foretold his salvation, uh, which would be through his death and resurrection, and how they showed that the Messiah would finally execute God's plan for his kingdom, uh, extending his grace and the word of his salvation to all the peoples of the earth. <clears throat> Jesus is the light of the nations, something that was uh, supposed to be the role of Israel, right? It's the role that God had always intended for his people, to be the light of of the nations, and that's Jesus. And now, through Jesus, God is restoring his kingdom, setting them back on the right track, calling them to mission, calling them to take his word of salvation to the end of the earth. And if you studied uh, the Gospels, as we just finished going through um, Mark's Gospel, you may remember that Jesus originally chose 12 disciples, right? Probably most people are familiar with that. Um, the significance of that number may not be readily apparent to everybody, but in the Jewish context of the, the scriptures, it's very important, right? the significance of the number 12. We read in this, uh, this morning's Old Testament reading from Genesis 35 that the sons of Jacob were 12, and then it was a list of their names. Right? Jacob, um, you may remember, was given another name by God, and it was Israel. So the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, were 12. These were the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the heads of those tribes. It was the people of Israel represented by these 12 sons. And from the beginning of God's dealings with their family, remember in Genesis 12 when he starts to, um, to make good promises to Abraham, I will make you a father of, of uh, many nations, right? Those who bless you, I will bless I'll make you a blessing to all of those people. God had extended um, his, his, the promise of his grace to everybody in the world. 
And that promise included um, beginning with the house of Israel, right? Beginning with Abraham's family. Uh, The people of Israel were intended to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. They would be his special people, the people who knew his love and his grace, who would be able to proclaim his excellencies to the whole world. It was truly a a place of privilege that these uh, 12 tribes enjoyed. But that position was supposed to be used for the good of others. And as we know uh, from the scriptures, the the tribes of Israel constantly were were throwing away their birthright, right? Uh, Constantly throwing away their privileges by giving themselves to other gods uh, in their idolatry. And they abused their position by despising other nations. They were supposed to bring the the good news to other nations, and instead um, they oppressed them and, and hated them. So if the world was going to be blessed the way God wanted it, then the 12 tribes of Israel had to be renewed. They had to be renewed as a people who knew God's grace, who clung to it, who clung to God, who loved their salvation, and who told others about it in a, in a gracious way. And so when Jesus came, he called 12, 12 disciples, the apostles, these 12 men would form the nucleus of a new community of faith, the renewed and restored people of God. In fact, Jesus made this explicit in Luke uh, 22, verses 28 to 30, where he, he said to his disciples, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Through the Gospels, we see the disciples um, just bumbling along, misunderstanding Jesus, not appreciating the values of his kingdom. They're doing it all the time. And yet he's been preparing them in all of his time with them, uh, preparing them for this, for the events that are recorded in the book of Acts. He had promised them that their ministry would explode. In fact, he said, uh, you're going to do greater works than I've done, which is maybe why that number uh, is recorded, that there were 120 people present. I mean, 120. Peter's going to preach tomorrow, and there will be 3,000. Jesus' ministry went so far as to gather 120 followers. (laughs) Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gathers thousands. So... Jesus is preparing them for this. He's promising to them that their ministry will really just take off when they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is, again, what we'll look at next week in chapter 2. As we discussed last week, the promise of the Holy Spirit was something that went along with the promise of the restoration of the kingdom. God's people would finally be faithful to their true mission when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And when Jesus had taught them these things from the Scriptures... He went up into heaven uh, where he remains um, only to return when it's the end of all things. And so his disciples uh, turned around, went back to Jerusalem, and in our text in verse uh, 12 and following, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were 
uh, with, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So finally, we see the apostles doing something right. Jesus had told them, go back to Jerusalem and wait. And they head back to Jerusalem and they wait. They await the Father's promise, just like Jesus had told them. And they're gathering together for a 10-day-long prayer meeting. Right? Continually devoting themselves in unified prayer with one accord to God for the coming of his kingdom, for his will to be done. Finally, the twelve themselves, who are supposed to represent and lead the renewed people of God, are on the right track. But wait, there's only eleven. And really, these eleven guys are not all that admirable. They've hardly done anything right up to this point. In fact, just a month ago, a little over a month ago, each and every single one of them had totally abandoned Jesus. And one of their own, who's no longer with them, had been the chief instrument of his murder. And Jesus chose these guys to be the new leaders. There's plenty of reason to lack confidence in these guys. At this point, they don't sound too much different from the original, unrestored, unrenewed 12 tribes of Israel. And worse yet, um, how do these guys reflect on Jesus? Remember, he had said, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He'd said that to them before they abandoned him to his death during his trials. Ultimately, they had failed to stay with him in his trials. Was assigning to them a kingdom just a really big mistake? Did Jesus botch things when he promised that his 12 disciples would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? If his best men are such failures, what does that say about him? If he had been trying to get 12 thrones filled, and now he only had a real shaky 11, (laughs) what does that say about Jesus? And you know what's really interesting about the passage in Luke, where Jesus promised the kingdom to his disciples, it's what he said right after that. The very next verse in Luke 22, starting verse 31, says, Simon, Simon, Peter, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew all about the disciples. He knew that they would all abandon him when it came down to it. And he knew that Peter would deny him three times. And he knew that Peter would turn again. Jesus knew that his his arrest and his death would confuse and frighten the disciples. He knew that the power of his resurrection would draw them together again. 
But he knew that his disciples would probably still feel guilt and doubts because they had deserted their master in the time of greatest need. He knew that all those who followed him would have doubts about these 12, now 11. Their leadership and their authority needed to be confirmed for everyone. And he knew that their doubts and their fears could only be put to rest when they were strengthened, when they were encouraged by the knowledge that all these things happened according to the sovereign will of the Lord. You do know, don't you, that the best thing for your faith, in order to believe that your whole life isn't just a tragic wreck, is to be convinced that God, in his love and in his wisdom and in his power, has been working everything in your life together for good. We all need to be strengthened by the knowledge of God's sovereign and gracious work in this world and in our lives, especially when the circumstances would tempt us to believe that God couldn't care less about us. Peter, Jesus had said, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Verse 15 of our text. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Yes, Judas, the traitor, had been one of us. In fact, it's only because of the fact that he was one of us that he was able to betray Jesus into the hands of evil men. But this was done to fulfill the scripture which was spoken long ago by the Holy Spirit through David. God is the one who has set these things in motion. It was no mistake on Jesus' part. It did not derail God's plans. And then uh, in verses 18 and 19, Luke inserts a parenthetical statement about Judas and the divine retribution he received for his wickedness. Before then, he returns to Peter's quotation of the particular scriptures. In verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. It's from Psalm 69. And let another take his office. It's from Psalm 109. These psalms, written hundreds of years before the time of Christ, portray the suffering of a righteous person at the hands of evil men. This in itself is an unjust thing. If you think otherwise, maybe there's something wrong with your sense of justice. (laughs) When the wicked are able to torment the innocent and get away with it, These psalms express the agony of the soul who endures such treatment. There's a longing for justice. And a curse is called down on the enemies of the righteous. And what greater instance of this dynamic playing out than with Jesus and Judas? Jesus was perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous, and of all the people... The greatest betrayal in the history of the world came from one who had lived with Jesus for three years, who had witnessed miraculous grace, who had every reason to love Jesus 
and Judas deliberately sold out the Savior of the world. Why was that guy a disciple? Because God chose him. Because Jesus called him. Because someone had to betray Jesus so that Jesus could die for the sins of the world. It was not an accident. It was necessary. God ordained it, and the scripture had to be fulfilled, but woe to the traitor who fulfilled it. So Judas received God's righteous judgment when he died a gruesome death. And the scripture was fulfilled when it says his camp or his habitation became desolate. Matthew says in his gospel that the field of blood where Judas died and was buried, it became a cemetery. It became an unclean place, desolate. And no one living dwelt there anymore. And now, Judas had to be replaced. His office as one of the twelve had to be filled. And Peter continues, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter's not just saying this because he likes an even number 12, right? as if 11 was unlucky or something. The 12 represent the restored people of God, and they were meant to testify to God's grace to the whole world beginning in Jerusalem. And Jesus said they would be his witnesses. Their testimony would be focused primarily on him. And the the most wonderful thing about Jesus, the center of the gospel, is that after dying to forgive our sins, he came back to life. He is the risen Lord. This changes everything. By his life, All things are made new. And who forms the core of the renewed people of God? It's those who can bear witness that this same Jesus who was with us for three years, who we saw baptized by John and heard God say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This same Jesus rose from the dead and he taught us And he is the exalted Lord in heaven right now. David Peterson said that they could guarantee that it was the same Jesus who had led his disciples during his ministry that now led the church as her exalted Lord. This is the core of the gospel message. It's their testimony to the whole world. Christianity is not just a tidy set of philosophical ideas. It's about God's work of redemption, of fixing things, of fixing everything. And it is firmly grounded in historical events. Miraculous events, but historical events to which there were eyewitnesses and the 12 eyewitnesses to the life and death and the resurrection and the ascension were to form the core of God's redeemed people and they were to go on mission and take his message to the entire world starting in Jerusalem. And if Jesus can't even start with 12 then they aren't the true leaders of God's people. God's mission is thwarted. And any message about God or Jesus should just not be believed because apparently God can't make good on his word. 
but the whole book of Acts is showing how God fulfills his promises, how Jesus is true to his word, and how he uses even broken people like the disciples to turn the whole world upside down. Someone once said that God can hit straight with a crooked stick. And that is very encouraging. David Peterson again says, Luke demonstrates God's faithfulness to his promises by showing how he began the restoration of Israel in Jerusalem. The first hint of this restoration is given in the election of a 12th apostle to replace Judas. And so, continuing on from verse 23, they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So two men meet the criteria that were laid out here, right? Having been eyewitnesses of Jesus from beginning to end. And from the language here, humanly speaking, the choice is obvious. Joseph is the one who commands the respect, who gets the better treatment in the description. Joseph is uh, Barsabbas. His name means the son of the Sabbath. And he's got a Latin name, maybe a nickname, which, like it sounds, means justice or righteousness. Yeah, he's the man for the job, right? Matthias is, well, he's just Matthias. In, uh, in fact, Matthias is short for Mattathiah. So it's kind of like saying the choices are Joseph, the son of the Sabbath, the righteous one, and Matty. And you've got to give the, the apostles some props here. <laughs> because they don't just go with the obvious choice. They're leaving this one up to Jesus. They take it to him in prayer. Maybe that's because they're finally learning to distrust their own discernment. Finally learning to distrust their own perspective and their own values. And they address Jesus as Lord the one who knows the hearts of all men. Literally, it's the heart-knower. They know that they can't see a man's heart, but Jesus can. First Samuel 16, verse 17 says this, The Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God alone knows which man will better testify to his grace as a faithful witness and with a heart that's transformed by the gospel. It's often not the straight stick, but the crooked one that best demonstrates God's ability to strike a blow. So the apostles pray to the Lord Jesus as God. They attribute to Jesus the divine characteristic of omniscience. You know the hearts of all men. And they ascribe to him the divine prerogative of, of making the choice, choosing uh, who to make one of the twelve 
to, to fulfill the number of the, the restored, renewed leaders of God's people. And they cast lots, which is not just some random way of making a decision like we would do by flipping a coin or rolling dice, right? That's not what that is. Um, it was an accepted Jewish way, uh, really attested to well by the Old Testament scriptures, of leaving a decision up to God, right? Proverbs 16, <clears throat> verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You might think it's a random thing here, like rolling dice. Who knows what you're going to get? It's just random. But its every decision is from the Lord. And in fact, this is another testimony to the sovereignty of God at work here. The apostles were confident that Jesus had chosen the man to fill the twelve, just as he had personally chosen each one of them before. And he did. And the lot fell to Maddie, the one that uh, no one would ever have expected. And do you think that all the disciples were encouraged by this selection? This was meant to be an act that strengthened them, right? That confirmed for them that Jesus, the ascended Lord, was still at work among them. They might have been hoping for Jesus' encouragement to them to look a little bit more like giving them a bold, brave, obvious leader, like Joseph the righteous. But when the lot fell to Matthias, they probably looked at each other and smiled and recognized Jesus' signature. That's how Jesus works. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. God is in the business of saving the world. No one can stop him, not even Judas. And these 12 apostles were chosen to represent him. And they were about to become the most influential people that the world has ever seen. These fishermen and tax collectors, cowards, and good old Maddie. <laughs> because the sovereign Lord Jesus was at work in them and through them. And the same risen Lord is at work in you. And through you, if you follow him by faith, which, of course, I highly recommend. So, amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we are often daunted by the task that you have set before us to make disciples of all the nations. We often feel alone in this project, and so uh, we are often 
scared away from participating. Lord, would you encourage us with the truth that you are sovereign over all things, that you are working intimately in us and through us by your spirit, that you, as the high king over all the earth, the, the king of kings and lord of lords, cannot be stopped in your purposes. Your purposes will be fulfilled. Your kingdom will extend to all the ends of the earth. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that you are the Lord. Encourage us with the truth of this in our lives as we seek to live for you in this world. We pray in your name. Amen.